0: and that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us, uh, to each one, as they, as they need uh, in, their, in their time of need. And we ask these things confidently uh, as your children, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Gail.
1: Good morning. It's been a while since I've been up here. <laughs> Okay, so this is really part of the message, but there are bits that you'll probably think, what on earth does that mean? And Chris will explain, won't you, Chris, when, during the message. <clears throat> so Hebrews 4, verse 14. Switch on, let's stay attuned. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, thanks for highlighting that, Evan, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes his honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you're my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he himself offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go to maturity. There's a challenge. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death. And a faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have lasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Chris will explain this, won't you, Chris? Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear, To the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And this verse is fabulous. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek.
0: Well, thank you, Gail. And, uh, you know what, even hearing God's word read like that, the reason why we're do doing it in big chunks is because that's how Hebrews was most likely first heard as well. It wasn't so much a letter... It's different to the other uh, letters, it's more of a book, uh, it's more of a transcript actually of a of a sermon, of uh, a message or a series of messages, so it's good to, to hear that, and even as you uh, read that out uh, again, um, Gail, and being able to hear it, um, I was challenged to sort of tweak one or two things along the way, so um, yeah, so it's it's a good passage, but what I'd like uh, for us to do now is to, is to together participate a little bit in this. You've heard the passage, it's probably uh, provoked for some of you, or evoked in some of you, um, some some thoughts, some connections, some uh, concerns. And so just for a moment, uh, if you'd like to stretch your legs, stand up and at the same time, see so if you can do this, you may want to stay seated for this too, just have a little discussion amongst yourselves, the person next to you, the person behind you uh, with this question. Can a Christian fall away or lose their faith? Can a Christian fall away or lose their faith? Now, you know, I do expect... if. if if we go on for 15 minutes with this, there will be sparks. So I'm going to stop it before there's sparks. And it's not about trying to convince anyone of your particular view on this, but most definitely discuss it amongst yourselves. Go. Go. Well, listening to the uh, to the ebb and flow of the co- of the conversation generally, it started out pretty quiet, then it got louder and louder and louder, and then it started to just taper off a little bit. So uh, thank you for those that engaged so well in that. And maybe you've met someone new and someone you want to follow up with afterwards and uh, have a, a deeper or uh, more in-depth conversation. But that is a, a question that has split and divided Christians for many, many years, isn't it? Uh, can a Christian fall away or lose their faith? It's, it's the kind of question just itching uh, to provoke a church division or a heated debate, even amongst well-meaning and like-minded Christian people. Uh, and it's with good reason, because it's a question for which there are uh, actually two almost equally good but opposing answers to. Now, obviously, there will be some who categorically say, no, a Christian cannot fall away because, after all, once saved, always saved. And uh, for that camp, if you're in the, the no camp, we can appeal to Jesus' own words in John chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus uh, talks to his disciples and he, and he, and he says that um, that no one can snatch his sheep from his hands as the sheep shepherd. Or what about this passage that we might use? It's a favourite one of mine. It comes from Romans chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul is absolutely confident. He says that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And he even goes on to list literally everything in the cosmos, from from the, the, the physical right through to the spiritual, that cannot in any way separate us from those who are in Christ Jesus, those whom God loves in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, verse 39. So there's a good case for no, a Christian cannot fall away and lose their faith. But just as passionately about no, uh, there are those who would say yes to that question. Yes, a person can fall away and lose their faith. Because why else would Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks they stand take heed, lest they fall. And haven't we also known people who, who were once actively involved, um, even serving, even leaders... Um, in churches in christian communities who have since fallen away so anecdotally and evidentially we we see people from the full extremes absolute passionate leaders and christian uh christian followers of jesus who fall away well of course we see that and it's heartbreaking isn't it and it's a burden often for many of us that we have to carry on behalf of loved ones That's the whole point, isn't it, of that fortnightly prayer meeting that our women's heart to heart have started up to gather together and to bring before the Lord in prayer those who weigh heavy on our hearts, who we know uh, perhaps fall into this category? Well, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6 is uh, definitely the other passage that is used uh, to support the passionate yes camp when it comes to answering that question. It's become one of the key passages, it's often proof text and used. Uh, to say the bible makes it very clear that a christian can fall away let's read it again from hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to 6 for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the holy spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come and then to have fallen away to be brought back to repentance what's impossible to bring them back to repentance and just hold that because that's the warning. That's that's the sticky bit of, of of this particular case and this argument. But for those in the no camp, they might say, "Yeah, well, it's, we can actually quite easily explain it." They might say that this is a, it is just a hypothetical warning. You know, it says there if they fall away, or perhaps the description of having once been enlightened doesn't necessarily mean that they were really Christians in the first place. You know, I used to have, think this debate that it's an easy question Because um, if you've fallen away, well, it demonstrates you weren't ever really a Christian in the first place. Because no one can fall away if you're a Christian. It's a little bit circular and convenient, isn't it? But before we continue to think too much more about this debate, it's really important to understand how best to uh, to to read any passage or small few verses of Scripture, and that is to get behind what's really being said to get uh, to to understand the meaning of any part of the Bible. It is heavily determined. By the other verses around it, it's heavenly determined by the context in which these verses are located in God's Word, and this is what we practice here as a church. All the Bible teachers here. This is what we take seriously. Um, we we look first of all at any text and we say, well, what what does this fit into? Uh, what only, not only does it fit into in the actual book that it's in? What does that book fit into in the New Testament or in the Old Testament? And how does that fit in in light of the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's it's a complex task understanding. God's Word and bringing it to God's people. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these fairly troublesome verses or divisive, potentially divisive verses in Hebrews 6. And we're going to have a look at them in the context of that big chunk that we've had read for us from the second half of chapter 4 right through to the end of chapter 6. Well, Hebrews so far. Let's just to recap. We've heard uh, in a, the first four chapters of Hebrews that the author or the preacher has used the Old Testament story, the Old Testament context, the Old Testament account of Israel's exodus. You know the one? Israel were enslaved for 400 years, many generations, under the Egyptians, and uh, God raised up a leader, Moses, who miraculously and and powerfully, despite his speech impediment and all sorts of things, um, he took God's people uh, out, um, and he led them out of slavery in what's called the exodus. And uh, the writers using this as the backdrop to help us better understand Jesus. Um, the message about Jesus uh, tells us that he's actually more important than the law of God. First of all, we looked at that in chapters one uh, through to the halfway through chapter two. Uh, then we saw that Jesus is better than the pioneer or the, the leader than that, that that was Moses, the man who um, God actually gave his law to um, by angels. So Jesus is better than Moses himself. And then we saw that Jesus is actually similar to Moses as the same sort of leader. He too is leading us to uh, a promised land, heaven, the new creation. And this is actually far better than the promised land that Israel were led to out of the Exodus. And that's summarized for us in chapters 3 verses 7 onwards to uh, the uh, halfway through chapter 4 up to verse 13. However, in the same way that the writer has pictured heaven, right, using this Old Testament theme of Israel's promised land, so that's what, he's, that's what he's tapping into here, he now describes heaven as the inner place. He gives it another Old Testament theme, the Old Testament theme of tabernacle, the inner place, the inner sanctuary. And if we jump to the end of chapter 6 of our reading, it was mentioned in verses 19 through to 20. Let me just read it for you. It's not up on the screen. It is in your Bibles. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. That's a reference to the tabernacle, the Old Testament uh, sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go into on a particular date, for a particular period of time, to do a particular task on behalf of the people. And if he did it wrong, um, they used to tie a rope to him to pull him out because he would drop dead and they'd have to pull his body out. That's how, that's how serious the Holy of Holies was. Um, and so there's this switch in the metaphor that the writer, the preacher, is using. The switch from the promised land that Israel were given to this inner place. There's something even better in the way that we might think about Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't just better than Moses uh, alone, who, who led the Old Testament people of God out from slavery into the promised land. But he's also the high priest. He's also the perfect high priest. He's the one who now leads all of God's New Testament people, both Jew and Gentile alike, into the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, which is what leads to that wonderful passage we've reflected on in communion, why we can boldly approach the throne of God. We can boldly approach that inner sanctuary which was forbidden. Only a high priest under special circumstances could do that. Now, because Christ has gone in there on our behalf, the perfect high priest, um, we can boldly approach uh, our Heavenly Father. Well, we're going to look a little bit more about this next Sunday, and I'm uh, passing that on for Evan. Evan's going to be sharing next Sunday from chapter 7 about some specific things relating to the high priest. Um, And uh, this is an important theme that kind of pops up right throughout uh, all these chapters, from chapter 4 right through to the end of chapter 7. And so we're going to sort of... We're taking out the themes a little bit differently and, and, and going to be putting it off uh, to next Sunday to have a look at. But, but just to set the scene for what we're looking at this morning, it's an important question. It's important to remember that Jesus is our high priest. He's the final priest. He's the last priest. And he's the only high priest that we ever need. We can be confident of this, that because of him as our high priest, our journey to heaven our journey to the new creation that awaits us when Jesus returns is guaranteed because Jesus is our great high priest and he's the one who's gone directly into the presence of God on our behalf. His high priesthood is the very basis of the confidence that we have in approaching God. He's the go-between. It's what a high priest did. He was the mediator between sinful human beings and a perfect and holy God. And Jesus is qualified uh, to adequately represent us because he too, as it references there, just like the great high priest Aaron of the Old Testament, he too was human. He was chosen from among men and is therefore able to sympathize with our weakness. But there's this other thing about Jesus that qualifies him, that sets him apart. And that is that we need a go-between who is acceptable completely, utterly and fully to God. We don't need a high priest that has to go in under special circumstances, a whole lot of rituals and tie a rope around their waist and go in with fear and trepidation at this particular time, hoping they get it right, just in case they just fall apart, unravel and die in the presence of God. We need a high priest who is acceptable fully and completely to God and that's who Jesus is. He's our acceptable go-between. And that's the reference there that God has uh, establish this in Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. Now, hands up here if, if you're a full bottle on who Melchizedek, Melchizedek is. Hands up here who can say Melchizedek really smoothly, right. Okay, you're sort of saying who? Well, he pops up several times here and he's a man of mystery. And again, that's something that Evan's going to enlighten us on next Sunday, which I'm really looking forward to. He's doing great, Evan, he really is. It's, it's wonderful. Well, interestingly, at this point, this reference to in the order of the high priest Melchizedek, the writer of Hebrews has a lot more to say about him. And like I said, he will next Sunday. But even he pulls up at this point when he mentions it in chapters 5 and 6. He pulls up in the sermon because he doesn't actually think his readers have quite what it takes yet. They don't quite have the maturity to be able to actually understand or accept what he's going to say. And remembering from the first few weeks, who's he writing to? Who's he preaching to? Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, converts who had come to understand Jesus as their Messiah. So they're very much Jewish people still. And he's saying, you know what, I, I, I just, I, I, I don't think you've got it. Now, you can have a look at there. it's in your Bibles, Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. Um, it's this rebuke, he actually rebukes them for their immaturity. And he says it, that their immaturity limits their understanding and of course that leads into this infamous warning uh, that we're looking at this morning so why does hebrews why does it rebuke the jewish readers for their immaturity of faith in jesus he says that we have much to say about this but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to even understand in fact Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be someone, uh, you actually need someone still to teach you these elementary truths of God's word all over again. These elementary truths of God's word. These elementary truths of what would be God's word at the time this was written? Be the Old Testament. The elementary truths of the Old Testament. It's a little bit of a strange rebuke because he's actually saying to them on the surface, as we would read it as Christians now, as New Testament people, he's basically saying you've got to move on from these elementary doctrine of Jesus. I don't know about you, it's a bit Gail said Chris is going to understand, but does does that make someone, oh, hang on a minute, what does that mean? Isn't that what we're all about? Doesn't our pastor and our preaching team, isn't that what they're always reminding us of? It's all about Jesus. Don't move on from the basics. This is what we've got to hold on to. What's going on here? Why are they being rebuked? ...to move on from the elementary doctrine of Jesus. Surely we don't move on from such profound, magnificent teachings. I know some people have used this passage, again taking it out of its context... ...and they've weaponised it to create levels of spiritual maturity in the church amongst Christians... And they've said, see, the Bible says it itself. We've got to move on. Stop teaching that Jesus forgives sin. Stop teaching that he died and rose again for our sins so we can be friends with God forever. Stop teaching the basic elementary truth that Jesus was both God and man. We've got to move on to that and get into some of these sort of higher levels of knowledge and or deeper levels of spirituality or, or whatever it is. Well, I've got to say that's completely missing the point because it's not what the writer is suggesting here at all in its context. Let's have a look as he continues in Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 3. He says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. Let us be taken forward into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, or your Bible might say from evil deeds. You know what you're referring to there, don't you? Religious works. So not laying down the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, or instructions about cleansing rites. Your Bibles might say baptism as well. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection of the dead is something, it's just a profoundly Old Testament um, understanding. The Hebrew people knew, they believed without a hint of shadow of doubt that God not only could raise the dead, but that he will raise the dead, and one day he's going to do that. That was just foundational to being an Old Testament Jewish person, a Hebrew person. It's funny how we as a church have only perhaps seemed to recapture that. Sometimes we forget the, the significance, the magnitude of the resurrection of the dead. But for them, then their elementary Old Testament teaching, this was basic foundational teaching, the resurrection of the dead. And, of course, eternal judgment. And he says, and God permitting, we will do so. We will move on from these elementary things and move forward into maturity. Well, it seems like an odd rebuke, doesn't it? But it's not when we realise that all of these elementary teachings were there in the Old Testament, glaringly obvious. You see, the Old Testament always points to Jesus. We know this now because we stand this side of the Old Testament and we we hear the accounts of Jesus and we know Jesus through the apostles' teaching and we can look back and go, oh wow, uh, look at that, that's pointing to Jesus. Or look at the gap in that story, look at the failure of God's people in that story. What do they need? They need a saviour, they need Jesus, that points to Jesus. For those going through our bible study you'll notice that the book we've chosen to go through in our life groups it talks about going from the shadow to the reality and that's what the old testament is the old testament is the shadow of jesus and the new testament of course is the reality the real deal we see uh, these are not uniquely christian teachings they're actually very familiar to first century hebrew people the rebuke is to the hebrews and to them as christians It's not actually to Gentile Christians like us, particularly when it was written. There'd be no expectation that Gentile Christians should understand the Old Testament and should already know the elementary teachings of Jesus. They wouldn't have a clue. We didn't have a clue. That's something that we need to continually focus on and trust God's word and listen to the witness of the apostles who knew Jesus. We've got to be very careful about applying and misappropriating particular passages when we pull them out of their context well let's continue um it's not who this rebuke was written to it's not written to us remember god's word is not written directly to us okay as we often think it's but it's but absolutely written for us okay this is written first of all to a particular group of people in time and space in history and we need to understand that to know how we can respond to it certainly written for us but it's not written to us hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 to 6 there it is again up on the screen so what does this warning mean what does this warning mean for hebrew jewish christians well it means this let's keep going forward with jesus let's not turn back let's not fall away to what not just give up on faith but fall away to the things you already know through your old religious old testament practices jesus fulfills all of these promises of god And you've been enlightened, the writer's saying. You've tasted this heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the the goodness of God's word, the goodness of the Old Testament teachings and the powers of the coming age, the, 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 the promise of the new promised land, heaven, the new creation that's coming. So keep moving forward with Jesus. I wonder, can you hear it a little bit differently now, just for a moment, as first century Hebrew Christians? You see, as always, our Bible reading, we must be careful of imposing questions that we have today on the text and being too quick to just jump back and, 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 and oh, that's, that's answering this question that I have today. Because the issue that the author of Hebrews addresses is not whether or not someone can fall away. Evidently, we know they, they do when they can. But whether or not someone who has fallen away can turn back. That's actually the question He's addressing. And this is a really damning and absolute response. The answer is no, they can't. It is impossible for such a person who, a first century Hebrew Jewish Christian, to be brought back to repentance. There is, according to God's word, a point of no return. But let's always keep in mind what the falling away actually means here and for whom this warning is being, first of all, directed at. It's not merely what we might call Christian backsliding, for example. It's very easy for us to conflate the two. You've no doubt heard about Christian backsliding. I certainly have. Who, who knows that term? It's not a biblical term. It's a it's a Christian cliche of which we have many and are known for many. But, you know, I tried to get, get a slide and there's a lot of funny ones and I thought, no, it's not something to, to joke about. So I certainly didn't want to be funny. But um, a lot of these came up, the idea of the sort of individual the lone ranger that's kind of wandering off into the mountains all by themselves. And, you know, growing up, I used to always think, well, maybe they're just following Jesus. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? Didn't he go off by himself to the mountains to be with God for 40 days? You know, like, maybe he's just seeking a bit of adventure. In fact, maybe in his mind, he's just, for a time in his life, just wanting to get the answers directly for himself, not from his parents or from his family or from the church family he grew up with. And for a moment there, he's just wandering off, he or she, and just... Actually, for, for a time, he's actually going to be open to what God may say to them and, and bring them back. So, we've got to be very careful about this overstating of Christian backsliding. I, I used to hear it said often in, in the churches I grew up in, and they're not unlike our church, although they're older. Like, we're, we're new, we've got it all right now. But back then, you'd hear people saying, oh, that, that person's backsliding. That's a terrible thing. Look at that backsliding Christian over there. Or I or hear it being said quite fiercely, that's how it came across to me as a young person, by well-meaning older Christians, no doubt well-meaning. Careful you're not backsliding. If you backslide, you can never come back. God's Word says that. You can never come back. Repentance is impossible. You will never come back. Once you're gone, you're gone forever. So repent now while you can. I plead with you young people who, who sat under those sermons. They can be done. You see, it's well-meaning... But I've got to say, if we're using Hebrews 6 for that, it's actually quite misguided. Because it's not what Hebrews 6 is saying. And therefore, it's not at all helpful. So let's not forget. What does falling away actually mean here? Well, given this whole section of Hebrews chapter 4.14 through to 6.20. For these Jewish Christians, first and foremost, who had received God's revelation, that Jesus was their Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of everything God had promised in the Old Testament, that he was the greatest and the final and the most qualified high priest and all that we need, falling away meant falling away back to Old Testament religion. That's what it means here. It meant turning back back to the old religious system of going to the priest day in, day out, the human priest, the one far inferior to Jesus, the great high priest, the one who has to, as we'll hear later on, has to keep sacrificing uh, cows and sheep and doves and whatever you can afford and lambs over and over and over again, making atonement for sins when Jesus has done it once and for all. It meant turning their backs on Jesus, no longer revering him as um, the God-man, as God in the flesh, as the one to worship, as Messiah, King, as Lord and Saviour. To fall away meant falling from the reality of Jesus and going back into the dark shadows, which only ever served to point people to Jesus in the first place. It meant that ultimately they'd be rejecting the Messiah, just like the rest of their first century Jewish countrymen, and therefore they'd be doing what? The same as what everyone knows who crucified Jesus, right? Jews and Gentiles crucified Jesus. The Romans crucified him, they're the Gentiles, and the Jews crucified him. And that's what is being reminded here. You're crucifying, once again, the Son of God, and you're doing so to your own harm, and you're holding him up to contempt. The exact details of that are unpacked further in chapters 7 through to 10, and we'll no doubt get to those in the coming weeks. But this particular passage, this particular warning... It serves as exactly that, a warning about falling away. Be warned, as we've seen all the way through, and Hebrews will continue to do this, just like the warning Evan shared with us about last Sunday, uh, the warning that we heard in in the passage last week. And as with all warnings, there's always a message of hope. Now, get this, because the passage continues, you see, while these first century Jewish believers, they're in danger of falling away, evidently they hadn't yet fallen away. They haven't yet gone past the point of no return. These verses act as a warning to not fall away, right? Don't go there. If you do, there's no coming back. So don't start out with Jesus only to fall back, fall back to the old religious ways of thinking and of living. But the writer is confident that they haven't yet. Because he continues in their case. Even though there's a real danger, given the direction that they were going. And they needed a stern warning to pull them up. They hadn't yet gone over there, gone over the edge yet. You know, it's a little bit like um like a cliff, who's been down to, uh, what's that beach in Foster with the big cliff sand dune, big sand dune, lovely sand dune on one side. Bennett's Head, head. thank you, thank you, yeah, Bennett's Head. Nice big sand dune on one side. Have you seen the other side? This will be a test to see who gets close to danger. Have you seen the other side? No, I saw it from a drone footage once, right? Okay, so we're talking sharp jagged rocks right down uh, to more jagged rocks uh, and about an inch of water down the bottom. So picture that. Picture taking the, the kids there. I know some of you don't have to picture it because you've done it and you, you know what I'm about to say. And you see the kids, they go, oh, look at this sand dune. And they race to the top and what do you do? You yell out, you go, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't go too far over the top of that edge, right? Because there's rocks down the bottom and a big cliff and you're going to fall and die. Um, and you might not be as explicit. You might just shout. You might plead with them. Do you know, you can, you can plead until you're black and blue in the face verbally and you can warn them about that edge but maybe there's another way to warn them, and that is to gently pick them up and walk yourself to the edge, and maybe hold them out over the edge, and say, so "Have a look down over there. Mum and Dad are serious. Do not go to this edge because look what's going to happen to you if you go to the. I, I don't know. I'm just saying. I don't. I've never done that. My kids were <laughs> unliftable at the age that we went to that uh, to that particular bend ahead." I do have, and I'm not going to tell a story, actually he's not here, I do have a son who learnt the hard way while we stick to the sand side, but that was as an adult and that's completely in his own time and we're just thankful that he's still here with us uh, as a result. But you can see the point, right? That's what this kind of warning is. It's one of those kind of like, have a look, because if you go over this edge, you're not bouncing back up off these rocks to do it again or to come back. There's no coming back, there's no repentance. You've gone beyond that point of hope. Listen again to it, verses nine to twelve. This is this is the hopeful bit. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case. See, they haven't yet quite got there. The things that you have to do with salvation, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust; He will not forget your work and the love that you've shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. He continues. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realized. What we're all hoping for may be fully realised. What are we all hoping for as Christians, whether Jews or Gentiles alike? We're hoping for the return of Christ to bring in the new creation, the new heavens and new earth that he promises upon his return. We don't want you to become lazy in the meantime, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. You see, you can't dilute down warnings. You can't just write them off and say that um, they're just hypothetical and play word games with if and so on, there's a real danger, right? That's why the warning's there. If there was no real danger, then you wouldn't need a warning. If there was like a rock-solid, four-metre-high, steel, concrete fence at the top of that cliff down at Bennett's head, you wouldn't need to tell the kids what's on the other side, because there's no chance of them falling over the edge. No. in the mind of the Hebrew, and the author of Hebrews, it's a very real possibility and it's a very real danger and that's why the warning alarm needs to be sounded. Well back to our question that we started with can a Christian fall away or lose their faith we asked that question, we discussed it and there's always a contrast between those that would say yeah they can, yep and those that say no they can't God's love is eternal you know, and we've divided up those passages we've got Hebrews 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 uh, on the one hand and They're the warning passages, and then we've got assurance passages, haven't we? Assurance passages, on the other hand, from Romans 8 and John 10, just as a sample. However, we have found that Hebrews 6 contains both. Hebrews 6, like most warnings in Scripture, and particularly in Hebrews, are always both. They're a warning as well as an assurance. Is the Bible contradicting itself? You think, how how can that be? That sounds like a hedging bets halfway, isn't it? You know, black or white, yes or no, in or out? Well, the problem is actually in the question that we're asking. You see, we've made a mistake, I think, in asking that question. Can a Christian fall away? It's a theoretical question. It's completely abstract. And I know while there would be some of us that have particular people in mind, we're actually missing the point. The New Testament asks us for a far more direct question. It's not can a Christian fall away it's will you fall away will you fall away or lose your faith you see it's a personal question and it's one that we all need to ask ourselves this morning it's not a topic for academic discussion about the plight of someone else fictitious or real or otherwise whether they're a treasured loved one or whoever it is they are and the answer to that more accurate question is actually this will you fall away or lose your faith Well, make sure you don't. Make sure you don't. That's the answer from Hebrews 6. It's both a warning and it's an assurance and it pushes us to the same conclusion. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep moving forward. Don't ask the question and get caught up in it. Make sure you're trusting Jesus and moving forward with him. Keep trusting. Maintain that hope. Encourage one another. And don't give up. You see, this issue about falling away or losing faith isn't hypothetical or abstract, is it? It's deeply pastoral. It's deeply personal. And it challenges first century Jewish Christians just as much as it does 21st century Gentile believers to make sure that in the end we're still there. That we finish this race. That we go the distance. That we end well and strong in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastorally, I know we've gone over time, but pastorally, I think this is important. I know for many here this morning, this question does relate directly to a loved one or to a number of loved ones or a friend or someone, someone who weighs heavy on your heart and it's a burden that keeps you up at night. What are we to do? How much should we say? What do we do with someone that we love and, and the warning's only gone so far and they've given up listening to the warnings? Do we keep warning them? You know, um, do we ignore them and, and press into the assurance passages in the desperate hope that they'll one day return to faith and, and, and ignore any confrontation with them? What is it we do? Let me suggest just a couple of things which i found helpful. The first one, well, the first couple to do with what we shouldn't do and then what we should do, what we perhaps shouldn't do. Avoid seeing your loved ones who no longer seem to have the faith or who perhaps once did. Um... Quit seeing them as, as naughty, rebellious children. This is something for us as parents and particularly if it is our children because even as adults we can still see them in the light of when they were little. Stop seeing them as naughty children who need to be terrified back into the kingdom. That's not a helpful way to approach bringing back or loving or helping out those um, who have tasted once and who have either fallen back to religious practices or given up on the faith altogether. Don't ever use Hebrews 6 as a weapon. Don't preach the warnings alone without the assurance. Can I say in my experience, and it's, um, it's not nowhere near the experience of many here in our congregation, but it's getting significant. Um, in the several churches that I've pastored in, three churches now that I've it in, been called vocationally to pastor in, plus several others that I've been a part of in growing up, uh, also as a young adult, and I've given much thought to this over this past week, I cannot literally think of one person that has ever come back to faith because they've been frightened back into the kingdom of God. I can't think of anyone. We hear those cute stories, usually in American films, we see people doing wonderful transformations and, and, and it taps into something that we'd love to see in our loved ones, but in reality, that doesn't happen. You cannot frighten someone into the kingdom. And I'm going to go even further. Can you imagine someone who's been frightened into the kingdom standing before God and going, "Phew, I made it. I was terrified of the threat of hell and everything else. And I made it. Oh, I'm so glad. Do you know what God may well say? I don't know you. (laughs) I don't know you. Yeah, you've done this and done that, but your motivation was out of fear. You're still trying to save yourself. You're still standing there going, I, 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 I ticked that box. Have I done enough? I was scared enough to be here in heaven. I don't know you. They're terrifying words. Don't ever try and scare someone into the kingdom. Certainly isn't helpful in this life and who knows what's going to happen in the life to come if that has been their sole motivation for coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Second thing is this, be careful not to speak about your loved ones as fallen, as backsliders and can I even say it, even labelling them as prodigals, it's not helpful. There's a wonderful um, interview, where's Evan again? Evan put it on to me a couple of weeks ago, I haven't heard it yet but um, we had a good discussion about it, Evan was listening to it and it really fitted in well with this passage um, it's between um, a, a couple of Christians Michael Jensen is one and uh, Megan Dutoir is another and they kind of take opposite views of things and they discuss Christian issues and one of them they brought on to their, their, their blog and we'll send a link out in next week's um, Church Life Church Life 2021 email um, to it so you can check it out but they interview someone who themselves is not a Christian but who was once one and they've come back and they've just said hey let me just Shed some light on how things are from our perspective as so-called prodigals, and it's really good for us to listen to. Because think about it: if they've been raised in church, they've grown up in church, they've been part of our church families, they've been part of our own families as Christians, they know what we think of them. They already know what we think of them. It's not helpful saying, "Oh, you're such. How are you going in your horrible prodigal life? Or how are you going in your fallen, this You're not going to win. You're not going to win anyone back doing that. You're just going to keep reinforcing the seething contempt for what they perceive rightly or wrongly about the Christian faith so don't don't call people out like that what can we do here's the positive stuff well you can only love people in the same way that God first loved us that's what you can do you can only keep loving people and showing them what the love of God is like what Jesus has done for us and how the difference that makes in our own lives and Believe me, we get that wrong, don't we? It's so much easier to jump to condemnation or to warnings or to, or to opinions and try and bring people back. But resist it. Just focus on you not falling away and continuing to show the love of God. Serve them faithfully. Serve them humbly. Check your own life of faith. Is it one marked by humble confidence in Jesus? Or is it itself maybe a faith that's marked by fear and trepidation of God's judgment? Because if that's all it is, are you a nervous Nellie or a frightened Freddie when it comes to the kind of Christian life that you're modelling to your loved ones? And last of all, pray. Pray. What Joanne and um, um, Janelle have, have put together on Tuesday mornings every fortnight is a wonderful thing. Pray. You can pray in private, you can pray in groups. Channel those natural concerns and the heartache about loved ones and trust God that he is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he's done and shown us in Christ Jesus that he's a loving heavenly father whose kindness, Romans 2 says, whose kindness, tolerance and patience leads to repentance. Keep trusting him. Keep praying for our loved ones. Well, that's an encouragement. The last part of chapter 6 there reminds us and assures us that God is faithful to his promises. He is completely faithful to his promises. And because of Jesus, God's faithfulness is proven, it's reliable, and it's complete. And we have a high priest who mediates directly on our behalf. Well, as the musos come up, so we might close uh, with our last song. Let uh, Let me close in prayer as they come up. Thanks, guys. Father God, we we come before you with this very sensitive topic, a, a partially and personally deep topic. But we thank you again for your word, for helping us understand it in context, for helping us see how to use and how not to use your word in the way we reach out to and love others who are close to us. And so for each one of us here this morning, as we close, our prayer is this, just simply the words... From Hebrews chapter 4, and the words made famous in song by Charles Wesley. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Father, this is a truly miraculous thing that you've given to us. Undeserved favour, a glorious act of grace. We thank you, Jesus, for your Messiah. We thank you that you are Messiah, that you are our Lord and our Saviour. You're the one who is faithful to the end, and therefore we have hope to know that you will hold us to the end, and we too can be faithful with you. Holy Spirit, strengthen us, I pray. Deliver us from apathy, from crippling doubts, from alluring temptations. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Thanks, guys.
1: Um, Once again, if you would like to sing, please feel free to come down the front um, or social distance. But for those of you who'd like to, please stand and join with us as we sing about Jesus, our Messiah, the only one who saves.